Welcome to the fruitnet.com audio edition. Coming up, there's a changing of the guard at South African fresh produce giant Capespan as three senior directors head for the exit. A warm reception in Chile, meanwhile, leaves the berry business buzzing and at least one journalist wishing he'd invested in a Chinese blueberry farm. And, talking of buzzing, the European Union acts to save bees from, here goes, neonicotinoids. Got it. All that, plus a roundup of other key stories and tweets on the fruitnet.com audio edition, your monthly review of the big stories in the international fresh produce business. So, a very warm welcome, and uh, with me in the studio, I'm very pleased to say we have Joel McShane, editor of America Fruit and our annual Trade Latin America supplement and our resident expert in all things Latino. Uh, very warm welcome to you, Jill. Thank you, Mike. Uh, and uh, alongside me again, Michael Barker, editor of the Fresh Produce Journal. Mm-hmm. Michael, welcome. Hello. Good to have you both here. Uh, and later on, we'll be joined by Fred Meinkies, who's our man in Cape Town, to talk about Cape Span. But let's start with the Global Berry Congress. Uh, Jill, uh, you and I were down in Chile last month, uh, we were looking at what's going on in the international berry business, and it wasn't just the two of us, it was about 398 other people from six continents, uh, a fantastic turnout, um, and uh, the fact that we had so many people at our conference in Santiago shows how excited people are about the berry business, don't you think? Absolutely, we had so much interest running up to the event, and um, more people turned up on the door, so it was definitely... Um one to uh, to be at. Mm. And we were certainly helped by the fact that um, so many people came from Chile. Now, you you know Chile very well, and you, you know what's happening in the berry business there. They're, they're famous for other products. Um, what's happening in terms of berries and Chile's position in global markets? Um, well, Chile is the, the leading blueberry supplier in the Southern Hemisphere, um, and they've been growing quite rapidly over the last few years. Um, to the point where they now export quite a significant volume of blueberries um, for the counter season. Um, and it all appears to be going swimmingly down mm. there. Exactly. And we uh, heard more recently that the um, that blueberry supply is going to increase significantly and demand is going to, to rise. Um, the, the blueberry supply and demand report, which was published by DGC Asset Management, said that the size of the global blueberry market will expand by more than 500%, and that's by, I believe, 2017, was it? Well, Michael, we're seeing huge growth all over for blueberries, aren't we? Yeah, we are. I mean, we've seen, it's, it recently, I think as recently as last year, overtook raspberries in terms of retail sales in the UK. It's absolutely shot up from absolutely nowhere into becoming the second largest berry fruit, and, and there are all sorts of predictions about it. You know, even going on to take on strawberries eventually. It's got this superfood mm. status, it's handy, it's snackable, kids like them, adults like them. So it's really a very good modern fruit, uh, easy to grow, uniform, you don't have to worry about millions of different varieties. So it appeals from, from every point of view, really. Mm. One of the things we learned in, in Chile um, was really that while there is great excitement about uh, a market like China, which is taking a lot more uh, blueberries, especially from Chile. Um, we were also reminded by people like Robert Verloop of uh, Nature Ripe in the US and uh, Adrian Olins of, uh, of Berry World that 
in, in Europe that markets that we regard as traditional and uh, not presenting much opportunity for growth can indeed give us, uh, give us more um, room to grow our business. Um, in the US, for example, there's, there's talk of uh, being able to increase sales even further this year. Is that right, Joe? Absolutely, yeah. Um, Robert Philippe said that Berry Sales had topped $5 billion in the US alone last year, which was up 12% on the previous year. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of talk in the US about the untapped areas of the market, for instance, the food service, the, mm. the convenience segment of the market. And they say there's there's absolute wealth of um, potential there to to tap into, lots of room to grow still. And even though the US is considered one of the more mature markets and perhaps saturated in some people's minds, the the reality for berries is that demand is increasing and there's all these untapped areas to to get into. So there's lots of opportunities for berry suppliers around the world. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we heard, of course, was that um, you know big. Uh, multinational companies like McDonald's, uh, Starbucks, they're asking for uh, blueberries, among other things, to, to give to their customers and finding new opportunities to, um, to sell them. You know, for example, at breakfast time, uh, I think Robert mentioned one of his suppliers that said, Robert, we're going to take breakfast back, uh, as in we're going to reclaim it from maybe some of the less healthier products that have been around uh, uh, at breakfast time before. Michael, uh, how are you looking in terms of your breakfast? Are you, are you still having your egg McMuffin? Are you, are you replacing it with uh, something healthier? Well, I'm pleased to uh, break the news to you that I'm, I'm on a healthy eating drive, uh, which has resulted into uh, a, a, a new breakfast that actually <laughs> includes blueberries. I, I swear I'm not making this up just because we're talking about it, but I have incorporated blueberries into my breakfast. Yeah, okay, okay. So, the, so the breakfast time burger has uh, taken a back seat. <laughs> that was a one-time thing. I was very tired. <laughs> okay, good stuff. Good stuff. And uh, of course, it wasn't just uh, North America and Europe we were talking about uh, down in Santiago. We uh, had a, a couple of uh, speakers, one from Korea and one from China. Um, and of course, China attracts all the attention um, because of its sheer size. Um, there, there was also talk about what, what potential uh, there could be for the Chinese berry market. And um, we had Dongya Yang of Chinese company Joyvio, uh, who was talking about how the blueberry market was booming there, Jill. That's right, yeah. they um, Because of the nutritional and health benefits of blueberries, um, blueberries are very much in demand by Asian consumers now. Um, there's a lot of interest on the retailers um, in filling the gaps in supply of their own domestic production. Um, and Joyvio itself is, has just set up um, a, a partnership with Subsole in Chile to guarantee production under supply for themselves. And that involves them buying farms, is that right? That's right, they've bought um, a number of farms together with Subsole for products not just including blueberries but um, also other uh, fruits and I believe wine grapes as well. Mm -hmm. um, and it's all about securing supply and having their own control over production and, and just making sure that those windows are filled. So are people moving into blueberries from other crops or are they switching from one berry into blueberries or are they just planting on, on new ground? Is it sort of an, an additional increase for the berry market? Um, I believe in Chile it's the fact that they've planted so many areas and then now they're coming into commercial production as it were. So they've now got the volume to ship to markets but the planted area I believe has been fairly stable. One of the big challenges we also heard about was that to 
meet this supply, um, they're going to have to come up with, um, okay, more volume, but they're also going to have to come up with better varieties. And Dave uh, Brazelton uh, of Fall Creek Nursery told us how we should expect a flood of new blueberry varieties over the next few years. Um, and that those varieties would really have to do better almost than some of the ones around at the moment. He said, we think that half of the fresh blueberries sold currently are not of the quality that the consumer wants. Now, they may have been suited to um, markets close to home um, when they were first planted, um, but actually travelling further afield or, or being stored for a longer time um, and other logistical challenges has, has raised the question that well, we actually need to find something different. Yeah, and I presume it's all a question of quality, isn't it? Because it's not like with a, with a strawberry or some of the other fruits. Um, you know, blueberries all taste the same, pretty much, to my, to my ignorant palate. But uh, I, I imagine occasionally you do get a, a, a punnet of blueberries and uh, some of them have already gone bad almost straight away. So I guess it's all about extending that quality and shelf life for the, for the retailer and the consumer. Absolutely. Well, it would seem um, for... All of those key players in, in the blueberry trade in particular, um, there, there's an open goal uh, there waiting for them. You know, 20% growth predicted uh, by Euromonitor in Western Europe, Asia Pacific, Latin America, Australasia and the Middle East and Africa by 2017. Um, we will wait and see if that, if that transpires. It may even exceed those expectations. Let's move on. Uh, let's move on to uh, the, the bee story. Um, we'll try not to drone on about it too much. Um, the neonicotinoids, and Michael, you, your uh, guys on the news desk at FPJ um, have been involved in this. It's been, some would say, a hive of activity. <laughs> yes, there's been a lot of buzz about it. Um, yeah, neonicotinoids, or, or neonics, as the, uh, as the cool kids call them, it's been, it's been making the news even as far as getting about a five-minute segment on Have I Got News For You on TV in, in the UK. So that's, that's the extent that people are taking an interest in this. Uh, celebrities, including Vivian Westwood, have been demonstrating in London, saying, you know, we've got to save the bees, we've got to get rid of these chemicals. And just to summarise the story, growers use these uh, three particular uh, insecticides on, on their crops to aid with the development and so on. Um, the EU has decided that these are um, harmful to bee numbers. Uh, UK scientists, some UK scientists have disputed this, but, but the EC has made its stance um, and has banned these three neonicotinoids, meaning that uh, they will no longer be available to growers, which of course is, is just another headache for growers uh, who are seeing their pool of available chemicals shrinking almost by the day at the moment. Do you think we should feel sorry for growers though? Is this not the, the harsh reality of a market that, uh, where consumers demand products that are as safe as they could possibly be? Now, okay, that may not be scientifically proven, which is one of the arguments that big multinational crop protection companies have cited, but beyond the, the doubt of consumers uh, is where the market wants to go. And, and isn't that what growers really should just uh, contend with? I would, say, put up with? I would say yes and no to the, as an answer to that. Because on the one hand, I think most growers would say they do want to produce in the most environmentally friendly way. They do want to produce in the most uh, chemical-free way. But that, uh, unfortunately, comes at a cost. And there's a bit of a, a contradiction here in that, that supermarkets are pushing down prices as much as possible. So if you're asking growers to switch to more um, expensive uh, or even less proven uh, 
chemicals or prop protection products, that, that's going to come at a cost that's not really coming through on the shelf. So from that respect, yes, I think you have to feel sorry for them if they're potentially losing crops or losing income because the things that they're used to using are not there anymore. And we, we've also drawn a comparison with uh, another related story, um, which is the story about DPA. Now, this has been um, knocking around for a while, uh, probably since the at least the start of the year, mm -hmm. um, and the the EC ended up um, banning the use of DPA uh, on products, uh, which has had a major impact on um, the US Apple industry in particular here in Europe. Yeah, this is a particularly controversial one. Um, they banned the use of DPA in the EC, basically, and uh, this has come contrary to what the United States Department of Agriculture has said is safe. It's, it's been approved in the US, uh, they use it in uh, South Africa, in Chile, uh, Australasia, you know, these, this product is, is standard throughout the world. Um, and the Americans are now saying, you know what? Maybe we won't even send apples to Britain anymore. Mm. Um, not Britain, the whole of Europe, in fact. And, and this is particularly relevant on crops like Empire apples, which are predominantly grown for the European market. So if the Americans are saying, essentially, we can't produce these products without using DPA, they're also saying we may not grow Empire apples anymore. So we could see the end of the Empire apple, which would, I think, be very sad. Mm. And equally significantly, next summer, we may well see shortages of Southern Hemisphere and US fruit on European supermarket shelves. If they decide there's no alternative, we'll send our stuff elsewhere. And, and for, uh, Michael mentioned Latin America there, Jill, uh, for those exporters um, who, who this affects as well, um, the importance of their other markets that they've been prospecting in the Far East uh, and perhaps closer to home in, in Latin America itself is going to increase. That's right, um, Brazil is looking um increasingly to the Middle Eastern market um, because of the high prices and, and huge demand there. Um, but in terms of Chile, most of the grower exporters that I spoke to about the DPA issue said that um, they already stopped using it since a couple of seasons ago because the levels that were permitted were too low for them to be able to work um, adequately with the, the DPA. Um, so they said that it wouldn't actually affect them and, and they'd already prepared for this ban. Um, so for them, it, it's not been too much of a trouble. Mm. So arguably, maybe they're one step ahead or even two steps ahead of their US counterparts. That's right, perhaps. Mm. Okay, let's move on now to another story. And there have been some interesting developments of late at Cape Span, uh, the South African Fresh Produce Group, which, although no longer the country's sole channel to overseas markets, remains its largest fruit exporter. Now, a gradual change in ownership has seen majority shareholder Zayda uh, secure more control. Then, just days ago, both Louis Creel, chief executive of Cape Span's fruit division, and Paul Kluver, its chairman, announced they were stepping down. Well, who better to ask about what all this means for Cape Span uh, than our very own man on the ground in Cape Town, Fred Meinkies. Hello. Fred, hi. It's Mike. Hello, Michael. I okay. just walked in. I'm ready oh, for you. That's good timing. So, Fred, some big changes at Cape Span over the past couple of weeks. Uh, what's, what's really going on behind the scenes there? Well, I don't think we must make too much of all the changes um, in respect of the fact that Cape Span is still a very sound organization with a very strong balance sheet. 
and it's one of the few agricultural uh, organizations which have emerged out of what we could call the previously regulated uh, environment, mm-hmm. which has been entirely successful with with a huge and very strong international infrastructure where they do very, very good business. So um, from that point of view, CASFAN is a strong organization. But uh, naturally, when, when you see these kind of changes, you there are always questions being asked. Mm. And there are questions being asked, for example, about um, fresh produce terminals, the logistics side of Casepan's operation down there in South Africa. Um, that's closing, and uh, the, the chief executive, Danny Schumann, has left. Um, why is that happening? Well, uh, I think uh, to a degree it is uh, the fact that containers and the growth in container business out of South Africa uh, is still taking its toll on the old conventional uh, terminals, mm-hmm. and uh, from that point of view, yes, I think the logistics department of Coastspan or Coastspan Logistics Division is uh, probably, and you know, at the moment not not uh, doing as well as they should be. Mm-hmm. I have just looked at their annual report, and you can see that the their their trading has been down. I've also learned that uh, recently uh, the um, Gaysfan Group tried to uh, sell this division. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually the sale fell, fell, fell through. But um, I think this is something we have to watch. What they've done there is they said, okay, let's remove the top structure, which is the head office structure, which uh, reallocate all the people to other divisions where we can, and the others will probably be retrenched. And then uh, from there onwards, the, um, you know, the company is now supposed to function uh, strongly again. But, uh, you know, I believe the terminals in Cape Town and Port Elizabeth will continue to be under pressure because of the march of containers. Mm. Um, on the organizational side, um, is, is there a danger of losing guys like Louis Creel, Paul Kluver? You know, Louis Creel's uh, been in the business for a long time. His dad ran the company before him. Um, their lives really were entwined in the fruit business. Um, y- once you don't have those people in the boardroom, are, are you at a disadvantage? I, uh, in the fruit business, we always keep on saying to each other it is a very strong relationship uh, business and that people like to t- see each other in the, or look each other in the eye and then they do good business with each other. But, uh, you know, uh, for Coastland, I believe it's a, it's a little bit of a, of a, a watershed this year because Paul Kluver, uh, as chairman, is also now retired. Uh, he has been uh, first at Unifruco chairman and a board member, mm. and also involved uh, now with Casepan and the board and running the, the the board of the companies for something like 21 years in the mm. fruit business, and, and that's, a, that's a long period of time and a long period of stability that he's brought. Uh, his departure has really been been accelerated by the fact that um, uh, the Cedar Investments Group, who are the major shareholders, have now got 71% of the company. Mm. And uh, Paul rightly felt that, you know, the uh, Cedar Group will want to take a much more stronger uh, strategic uh, decision-making interest in the company, and it was time for him to go. So he has left. Uh, Louis Creel uh, has held the international fruit divisions together. 
uh, for for a considerable period of time is uh, leading he's been leading the the developments in China and and uh, certainly have played a major role role in the in the international structure of the company mm. how this will pan out I don't know we'll have to watch it but uh, I don't think there's many let's say it, fruit uh, grown and bred people on the board of Coastman at the moment. Mm. So, uh, yeah, do, I do think, you think they'll be looking? Circle. Do you think they'll be looking for somebody of his caliber who knows the fruit business very well uh, to replace him, Louis Creole in particular? I uh, do not know. Um, it will be something that we'll have to watch. Mm. Uh, the, um, the new uh, board of directors uh, will be watching the bottom line of the company and will be saying, okay, as long as we continue to make money, we'll be happy. Mm. So, um, you know, perhaps a, a little bit of, of uh, you know, a loss here for us. Uh, all people who have known the fruit business in South Africa would say, yeah, you know, the loss of, of, of good fruit men is always not a good thing. Mm. Um, in terms of where Cape Span goes from here, it's already spent quite a lot of time um, changing its business, reacting to deregulation and moving towards a more customer-driven model. Um, how far have they got to go um, over the next few years to position their business in the right way? Well, you know, deregulation arrived in 1997 and we are now in 2013. And I think, uh, you know, the time to reposition yourself has, is really <laughs> over. I think, I think they, they, they have repositioned themselves extremely well. The company has been doing extremely well. Uh, their, their results this year uh, looks very good uh, because they've now got the other 50% of, of the old uh, total um, produce shareholding in, in the international divisions in, in the UK and in, 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 in Europe. Mm. So they, um, they are strong. Mm. They're a good uh, company. Uh, I believe that uh, companies like Sears uh, Investments wouldn't have paid the amounts of money or, or made the efforts they did make to, to get uh, you know, part of the company or to pay for these shares to, to get in this position if they didn't think it was a good company. So you know, I, I, I have no fear that the company will continue to grow, do well, come up with new initiatives and, and reposition itself constantly. Uh, the, you know, the fruit business has changed in South Africa so dramatically since deregulation that you know, nothing of the old business is really left. And so, uh, yeah, you know, somebody said to me the other day, I don't have to even think about uh, Coastal anymore to be successful of the in, in the international food business. And I had a nice chat with Paul Kluwer the other day, and he said mm. me, to me that the fact that Coastal has been successful and uh, maintained a strong position in the South African um, export arena since deregulation has created that wonderful environment in which other companies could flourish too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can name a few. Pete Carsten, who started off as a member of Coastal, and is now one of our most successful uh, international fresh produce exporters who, uh, who handles their product 100% all the way to the final customer. And, and you know, that's quite unique. Um, they don't, um, you know, they do very well. And there are a lot of other ones, the Toys and the old Deciduous Fruit Company. They are all uh, successful, uh, good operators, and Case is successful in his own right.
All right, Fred, well, interesting stuff, and we'll, we'll keep watching it, and I'm sure you will too. Fred Meinke's there in Cape Town. Okay, so we've got some time just to uh, rattle through some other stories. Um, you know, I'm, I've been looking through the, the list of most read stories on fruitnet.com. Uh, um, one of the top stories, sadly for you, Michael, is wet summer predicted for the UK. Um, need we say more? But we're not really. The headline still, still tells the story, is it? We mm. didn't really need to put anything on it. We should have just said same again. Coming <laughs> up. And another story we had was the uh, the Times Rich List, Michael. The the Times famous for publishing a, a long list of um, very 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 moneyed people, um, and the rest of us read with a mixture of envy and uh, I suppose uh, perverse pride in in those people who've done very well for themselves. Um, you on the FPJ, you picked out some of the people in the fresh produce trade. Yes, there were quite a number of uh, figures, in fact, appearing in this Sunday Times lit rich list. Um, if you look at people associated with supermarkets, the uh, Sir Ken Morrison and the Morrison's family uh, collected a cool six hundred and fifty-four million pounds last year. Not bad going. Well, not last year, but that is in fact their net worth. Um, Lord David Sainsbury, the uh, the owner of the uh, Sainsbury supermarket, they collected five hundred ninety million pounds. So clearly, supermarkets is a great place to be earning money if you happen to have started one up at the right time. Um, stretching a bit more generally, we've got Jamie Oliver, the uh, celebrity chef and all-round entrepreneur, who collected one hundred and fifty million pounds. That's his personal fortune. He's got a restaurant chain. He's got magazines. He's got books. Um, He's got all sorts of things, and we'll come back to him in just a minute because we've got an exclusive interview coming up with him in the Fresh Produce Journal as well. Mm. Now, there's this theory that can you make money from farming, yes or no? Well, a look at this rich list suggests that you can. Um, we've got Ronnie and Alan Bartlett, the brothers who uh, own separate businesses in the uh, vegetable and potato sectors. Uh, they earned, they have a collected wealth of £93 million. Uh, we've got John and Guy Shropshire here with £46 million, the owners of G's Group. And uh, we also have Nicholas Outred, the, the chairman of the William Jackson Food Group that last uh, year acquired Abel and & Cole. And we also have the Randall family, which uh, runs Evesham-based vegetable supplier Cane's Foods. Their family is worth some £75 million. So it just goes to show that... Yes, farming can be a tough industry, but if you make it to the very top and you know you really succeed at what you're doing, there is money to be made. Mm. So these guys all made the Times list. They did. And yes. How many people were on the list? Uh, I believe they produced a thousand places. A thousand, right? Okay. Because I, I you know, lists uh, are a great favourite of magazine editors, and we've, you know, we've considered doing uh, one of our own on Eurofruit before. Um, I think we found that actually it would involve. Uh, taking a year off to do it, uh, which is a shame. But just a kind of little straw poll of, of some of the top people uh, in, in the European business. Uh, you know, you can pick out somebody like Hein Dupre uh, of Univeg, who actually was named um, as the 55th richest man in Belgium a couple of years ago. He, he's worth, a hundred, well, he was worth 149 million euros in 2009. Um, I actually had the pleasure of sitting in the back of his chauffeur-driven Bentley a couple of years ago. Wow. Um, I, you know, I didn't realise you could have so much wood panelling in the back <laughs> of a car. Um, it, anyway, so the, and uh, then there's the Orsero family in Italy who, uh, who own GF Group and a number of subsidiaries. Um, they operate their own fleet of private jets. 
Do they? Um, I haven't actually been in one of those just yet, but you know, <laughs> if, if the offer's there. Um, and then you've got people like David Murdoch of Dole, uh, who it, you would class him as super rich, I think. He's, uh, in fact, the 613th richest billionaire in the world. Yes, he appears on the Forbes rich list, doesn't exactly. he, with his yeah. uh, fortune. And I think we can probably safely say uh, is the world's richest fresh produce individual. Probably. I think he'd have to take that. I mean, uh, the, the, the other person who sprang to mind, uh, perhaps, um, is Mohammed Abu Ghazale of Del Monte. Now, the reason I say that is because his, you know, his salary is, is stated as 7 million US. Uh, he's got shares... Uh, uh, He's got 5.3 million shares in the company. Uh, the share price today um, is 27.34 US dollars. So if I just do the math, purely off the top of my head, that's 145 uh, million US dollars, give or take uh, a, a melon or two. Um, but he has loads of other directorships and no doubt shareholdings. Uh, he's actually the chairman of the Royal Jordanian Air Academy. Wow. Now, if, if, our, if our boss, Chris White, was here, he'd be able to tell me whether that means he's a pilot or not, but we will have to wait till another day to find out. And then you've got other people, you know, similar to Jamie Oliver, you've got Klaus Meyer of Noma, uh, you've got Gordon Ramsay, another Brit, uh, you've got Alan Ducasse. Um, no room for Anthony Worrell Thompson, though, who's Unbelievable. down on his luck and stealing onions from Tesco last time we heard from yes, him. Yes, indeed, yeah, he's probably uh, just slipped outside the list there. Yeah. And, uh, and I wondered, could you include Prince Charles on this list, given his involvement in horticulture? I think it's uh, a little tenuous, but uh, maybe we can give him an honorary spot. Okay, he made some of his money elsewhere, of course. Okay, let's move on to, just finally, to some of the tweets. Uh, we're at the cutting edge, of course, of uh, social media, so let's have a, have a good look at the, what's going on in our Twitter feed. Uh, Coca-Cola has said it will drive the obesity battle, um, I assume that's against obesity, <laughs> uh, with calorie counts um, in 200 countries. Uh, it's pledged to measure uh, calories in 200 countries and promised to end advertising aimed at children under 12. So as soon as you hit your 12th birthday, you're going to be faced with an onslaught of sugary Yes, I'm probably a sceptic, but um, do they not already put calorie counts on their cans? I'm not, I'm not quite, is this not just a PR soundbite? Because I'm fairly sure that information is already available. Well, they wouldn't be the first multinational to go for a PR soundbite, of Indeed. course, especially uh, on Twitter, where it's very easy. Um, Moving on, uh, Zespri, our friends, the kiwifruit marketers, uh, they've set up their first Twitter account in Europe, and that's for the Spanish market, which is their biggest uh, European market. So, uh, bienvenidos uh, to Zespri, España. Uh, Julia Glotz, uh, your former colleague, I believe. Or uh, no, did you? I, no, no, you left. She was okay. my replacement. Ah, okay, okay. So she was she was a, a vast improvement for the grocer. <laughs> Um, she has tweeted that half a million Brits rely on food aid as benefit cuts, rising food prices and food deserts uh, hit the poorest households. This is a really serious story and I know similar things are occurring in, in places like Italy uh, and Spain uh, where the, the prospect of having to um, take a handout for, to, to eat um, it has become all too real for a lot of consumers. Well, it's an extraordinary story. I remember reading this and thinking that at the heart of this is partly to do with the, the complexity of the government's benefits system. And that, that was at the heart of the story. And the fact that 
that it was taking people so long to claim when they fell into difficult circumstances that uh, they were sort of falling into poverty whilst trying to go through this application process. Um, moving on to Russia, uh, Ksenia Goravaya, uh, apologies to her for mangling her name, uh, has tweeted that the uh, X5 retail group, that I, I believe that's the largest uh, in, in Russia, um, has admitted that centralising its management was a mistake. They've said that uh, logistics and commercial teams will be split again uh, across their different divisions uh, and banners. Um, perhaps an example uh, that cost-cutting can go too far um, and a, a salutary lesson for some of the other retailers who are looking to um, consolidate and bring, bring costs under control. Uh, a little test for you, Michael. Uh, thanks to our friends at MyFruit uh, in Italy, uh, they have tweeted Google Trends most popular food search items. So okay. there's a small uh, challenge for you. Uh, I want you, Michael, to name the most searched for item of fresh produce in the world today. On Fresh Google produce. Okay, I am going to say it has to be the potato. Not even close. Uh, I'll give you a clue. It was. It, it only just made the top ten. Not much of a clue. It's it's not a great clue, is it? Um, cucumber. Well, I'll, I'll give you that because if if you're talking about cucumber, which is included in a salad. Then salad that was is the what I was talking about. exactly that was the tenth most uh, searched for food item um, below in reverse order cheese candy and I assume they mean sweets and confectionery uh, beer not technically a food item but um, you know provides uh, provides comfort and sustenance to many uh, egg wine coffee. Chicken, uh, cake, and the top one was your old favourite pizza. Oh, you could have a you could have a fine night in with that little lot. You could do, couldn't you? And of course, pizza has tomato on top. There you go. And talking of uh, all things Italian, or should we say American or Italo-American, McDonald's has Italianized its menu. Mamma mia. Yes, uh, they've joined forces with Italian pasta brand Barilla uh, to Italianise their menu and uh, they're serving up a penne pasta salad uh, which they describe, and I quote, as a balanced and skillful mix of tuna, tomatoes, peppers, capers and olives seasoned with a pinch of oregano, or oregano as they would say, and salt. Uh, and as the, as the uh, Guardian says here, uh, that's a far cry from a Big Mac. Um, We've seen this before, haven't we? We've seen them come up with um, national versions of um, their signature burgers. But I guess this is the next step, Michael, that they're taking menus and saying, look, they don't have to be identical Americano-type uh, menus. Uh, they can be Italiano. Yeah, I think this is a good thing. I mean, they're putting more, a bit more variety on the menu. Let's face it, it doesn't matter whether you walk into a um, McDonald's in Paraguay or one in Guam or one in, uh, in any other country in the world, but they all have almost identical menus. So why not tailor them a little bit to each country? We know that McDonald's do actually, in their defence, uh, place local sourcing very highly. They, um, in the UK, for instance, they source 
from the finest growers, uh, they source their meat from the best producers, there's a lot of traceability in the supply chain and also importantly they've got supply chain relationships going back not just years but decades with these same suppliers. So why not take that a stage further and actually produce more more regional menus using those uh, using those products. Yeah, absolutely, and I think this is a, a victory, albeit a very slight one, for the consumers themselves. Um, you know, we live in a very joined up and international uh, world uh, where you can source products from all over the globe, um, and perhaps this is a sign that um, we've got a trend that's moving back towards um, local products. Um, Hopefully, you know, McDonald's, as you say, will source as many of those products locally and we'll start to see fresh produce uh, in particular appearing in those menus. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks very much for listening to the fruitnet.com audio edition. We'll be back next month. <laughs>